Hello and welcome to the Orb of Greatness podcast, episode 1.14, Two Battles and an Execution. Last time we discussed the first month of the Cuban Revolution that took us through the ambush at the El Gria de Pio and the journey into the Sierra Maestra. This time we have our first taste of combat. At the end of episode 13, I left you and Che wondering if Fidel's plan of attack in La Plata would be successful. While it will give away the end result, I wanted to start today's episode with a quote from Che's episodes of the Cuban Revolutionary War. The attack on the small barracks at the mouth of the La Plata River in the Sierra Maestra brought us our first victory, and had repercussions which reached far beyond the Craigie region where it took place. It came to everyone's attention, proving that the rebel army existed and was ready to fight. For us, it was the reaffirmation of the possibility of our final triumph. If you were to Google the Battle of La Plata, your first result would be the larger Battle of La Plata, which took place in July 1958 as part of Operation Verano. That battle will prove to be a major victory for the rebels and helped lay those final steps towards the victory of the 26th of July movement. The first Battle of La Plata was much smaller. It may even be better classified as a skirmish, but as Yoda likes to say, size matters not. Despite the small scale, this battle formed the foundation for the remainder of the struggle. A loss here would have likely ended the war before it really got started. Instead, the victory gave Fidel and his band of rebels the momentum they needed to acquire a force. So, let us dive into what happened. On January 14, 1957, the group stopped at the Magdalena River. Fidel gave the orders to begin target practice with the new recruits. Jay helped train the men on the elements of marksmanship, down to the simple mechanics of how to hold a gun. Some of the new peasant recruits had not even done that before. The stop on the river also provided the many a moment to bathe. Bathing can be a rare thing when fighting a guerrilla war, and this occasion was a treat for the men after a month of hard hiking and running for their lives. While not bathing was not really an issue for El Chancho Guevara, it likely was still welcomed and gave the rebels a sense of normalcy as they prepared for their first true engagement with the enemy. The rebels had two main goals for their early offensive actions. First, and most important, they wanted to prove that the revolution was alive and a force to be reckoned with. No one would join a force that could not hold its own, and no one would believe that they had a chance to win if they could not win a small skirmish. Second was to steal weapons and supplies from the army so that they could better equip themselves. And third was to prove to the peasants that they were the good guys. Attacking the rural guard, who were known to be cruel to the local peasants, was a great start for the goal number three. But beyond that, Fidel had a plan. Fidel and his command staff, principally with the help of Crescencio Perez, started the hit list of the most notorious mayorales. The mayorales were the overseers and foremen on the pl large plantations that were owned by the wealthy landowners. The overseers were known to be very violent towards the peasants who worked under them. The La Plata barracks, which would be the target of the first rebel attack, was located on the Leviti family estate. The Levitis were one of the largest landowners in the area, and through force, combined with cooperation with the rural guard, had built an enormous network in the area. In many ways, their land holdings and patron network resembled a medieval fiefdom. The family maintained control through a reign of terror that was orchestrated by their hired overseers. The top three mayorales on the hit list all worked for the Levites and lived in close proximity to the barracks. Fidel and his command staff believed that it would be essential to the long-term success of the 26th of July movement to position themselves on the side of the peasants and common people of Cuba. By striking against the corrupt overseers, who were known to be very friendly with the government's troops, it would reinforce their positions as the defenders of Cuban liberty 
and proved to the peasants that now was the time to stand up to Batista and fight for a brand new day. Even if the rebels could not convert every peasant to their cause, they at the very least needed the peasants to become neutral observers. The surest way to defeat would be through the peasants becoming government informers. After losing some of their weapons after the ambush at Algria de Pio and a number of peasant recruits from Crescencio's peasant network, the rebels were at a strange junction of their war effort in that they had more soldiers than they did guns. The small force, with even fewer guns, needed to pick the perfect location to attack. The Lapata barracks was chosen as it was still under construction and only lightly guarded, the perfect type of target for the largely inexperienced army. However, as a barracks is still stocked to help the amount of guns and ammunition, a successful attack on the barracks would allow them to steal the weapons of their enemies and equip their own men, a signature move for a guerrilla army. One of the local peasant guides who worked with the rebel army had been told the location of the first attack and had gone ahead to mark a path from the base camp to the Lapata barracks. The guide had used his machete to mark the path and on the afternoon of January 14, 1957, the rebel army set off down the path and toward the glory of battle. During the march, the group happened upon two local peasants. There was a fear that the two would warn Batista's army of their presence and ruin their element of surprise. The rebels could not kill the peasants without incurring the enmity of the local peasants, but holding both captives presented a number of logistical problems. The solution was to keep one captive to ensure the other's silence. One captive was far easier to manage than two. The plan appears to have worked as little as mention of these two again. The next day, the rebel army came within sight of the Plata army barracks. From there, they spied upon the movements of the small group of partially dressed soldiers working on the barracks construction. Initially, the plan was to attack after sundown and attempt to catch the soldiers tired and by surprise. However, around 6 p.m., just before sunset, a Coast Guard boat came up the river and landed in the area. Some of the soldiers boarded, others came ashore. The ship brought an uncertainty to the situation, and Fidel decided to postpone the attack until the following day. It was difficult to ascertain how many men were aboard the ship, whether or not they had weapons, and the prospect of potentially rushing out just to be caught in a crossfire was enough to dissuade the need for an immediate attack. Instead, the rebels set up lookouts to make sure the soldiers did not happen upon them unexpectedly. From dawn onwards, the rebels watched the barracks and studied the movements to prepare for the attack. The ship had withdrawn in the night, and a search of the area found no additional enemy troops. At 3 p.m., the group moved to the river. Across the river was a small road that led to the barracks. The road provided a different perspective to view the barracks and a good vantage point from which to approach. Once night fell, they crossed the La Plata River, which was quite shallow in that area, and took up positions on the road. Now, five minutes after they had finished taking up their positions, two peasants happened down the road, and the group apprehended both. Unlike the first set of peasants, one of the peasants was a known informer of the Royal Guard. It is not clear who uttered the threat, but someone implied that the peasants best start talking, or else. In response, the two peasants provided all the information they had. According to the peasants, the barracks housed 15 soldiers, and they had seen Chicho Osario coming up the road. Chicho was one of the overseers for the Leviti family, and happened to be number one on the rebels' hit list. The rebels readied for his arrival, and sure enough, within minutes, Chicho Osario rode forward astride a mule. It was clear from afar that the overseer was very drunk. In this case, he was drunk on his ass. What happened next is the stuff of Cuban legend. As Chicho rode into view, Universal Sanchez shouted to him to halt in the name of the rural guard. Chicho rapidly responded with the word, Mosquito. Mosquito appears to have been Chicho's safe conduct password. The rebels approached and confiscated Chicho's gun before they ushered him to Fidel. Che joked after the fact that the rebels must have looked like pirates, 
but Chicha was too drunk to notice the lack of uniforms. Fidel summoned his air of authority and indignantly stated that he was an army colonel investigating the sorry response to the rebels' threat. Fidel questioned Chicho how he planned to assist Batista to eliminate the rebels. Chicho boasted that he and his fellow overseers had already begun roughing up local peasants in an effort to find the rebels. Chicho went as far as to bray that he had personally killed a rebel and then stolen his shoes. He pointed down to his feet to show off the finely made Mexican shoes. It was then that Che noticed that Chicho wore the exact same brand of Mexican-made shoes that Che and the other grandma survivors wore. In that moment, Che wanted nothing more than to end Chicho's life, but Chicho had not yet outlived his usefulness. Fidel, on the other hand, did not lose his temper, nor give any show of hint of anger as Chicho showed off his boots with pride. Instead, Fidel congratulated him and told Chicho that he was exactly the type of man the army needed to be successful in the Sierra Maestra. Fidel then asked Chicho what he thought of the troop station at the La Plata barracks, and reminded him that Fidel was looking for ways to improve, so not to hold back on the weaknesses of the men. Chicho described the state of the barracks and the layouts of the buildings. Fidel stated he was impressed by Chicho, and that he would be honored if Chicho accompanied the soldiers to the barracks in order to surprise the guard stationed there and prove that they were neglecting their duties. Chicho agreed wholeheartedly as he looked to prove his worth to this newly arrived army colonel. The group marched behind Chicho and soon drew close to the barracks. The barracks consisted of three buildings, a wooden buckhouse, a house, and a small thatched roof hut. The rebel army had 22 weapons total ready for the attack, and Fidel broke the group into four squads spread out in an L formation opposite the river so that the only means of retreat for the enemy would be to go through the river. Che took up his position in the center of the unit near Fidel. As the time of the battle drew near, Che worried that if they failed to take the barracks, even if they successfully escaped with their lives, the war would be lost due to the wasted resources. He knew better than anyone just how limited their ammunition was. The rebels approached the barracks, then stopped approximately 40 meters away. By the light of the full moon, Fidel initiated the battle with two bursts of machine gun fire. The rifles and other guns followed with a short burst and then fell silent as instructed. Fidel called out for the enemy to surrender, but he was met with silence. The first round of gunfire accompanied the execution of Chicho. Chicho had been left with two members of the rebel army who were given explicit instructions to shoot Chicho as soon as the fighting started. The barracks guard refused to surrender without a fight, and so the official attack began at approximately 2.40 a.m. The sergeant in charge of the barracks was armed with an M1 semi-automatic rifle, and he led the guard's stiff resistance. Every time Fidel demanded their surrender, the sergeant let loose a new burst of gunfire. Fidel realized that they would have to show a stronger offensive to win the day, and ordered Che and Crespo to throw their grenades and Raul his dynamite. Unfortunately, all three of the explosives seemed to be duds, and they fell harmlessly to the ground. Next, Fidel ordered the central unit to charge forward and set the nearest building on fire. Universo Sanchez and Camilo Cienfuegos both made it to the buildings first, but neither were successful in lighting that one on fire. Instead, Crespo and Che worked together to get close to a building and cover one another as they successfully set it aflame. The fire finally was enough to intimidate the barracks guard, and they fled. In the flight, some were killed and others surrendered. The defiant sergeant successfully fled along with a few of his soldiers. The battle ended, and the rebels took stock of the loot from the barracks. Eight Springfields, one Thompson machine gun, and 1,000 rounds of ammunition. Che estimated that in the attack they had fired approximately 500 rounds, so they came out ahead. In addition, they found cartridge belts, fuel, knives, clothing, and food. The final casualty count showed the enemy had two dead, 
five wounded, and the rebels had taken three prisoners. The rebels, on the other hand, escaped without a single wound. The rebels knew that they could not stand around too long or else risk that the escaped guards would come back with reinforcements. Together they set fire to all of the buildings. Che personally set fire to the house of one of the overseers who lived in the area and appeared on their hit list. Unfortunately for the rebels, the overseer appeared to have fled as soon as the fighting began. With the barracks looted and set aflame, the rebels next attempted to tend to the enemy's wounded. Time was limited and the wounds severe, but they did the best they could. As they made ready to disappear back into the jungle, the rebels would release their prisoners and the peasants they had previously captured. Fidel had addressed the prisoners personally before releasing them. He left them all of the rebels' available medicine to care for their wounded colleagues. He wanted them to know that this battle was with Batista, not with the people of Cuba. Che would learn after the war that the five wounded soldiers succumbed to their wounds and died, but the show of mercy towards the captives and wounded was not forgotten by the survivors. In fact, one of those captured guards eventually defected from the Royal Guard and joined Rebel Castro's squad. After the man joined the Rebel Army, he would prove his merit and climb to the rank of lieutenant by the time they liberated Cuba. At the time, it pained Che, as a medical professional, to leave the medicine for Batista's troops rather than keeping it for their own. However, he saw the wisdom of the move later. Che made a special note in his published account of the Battle of El Plata that he believes a major reason for the movement's eventual victory was the difference in the way Fidel and Batista treated captives or wounded enemies. Batista's men were known to be brutal. They mercilessly killed the wounded and captured rebels and reportedly abandoned their own. As the war dragged on, the practice led to morale problems for Batista and plenty of defectors. Fidel was able to use the opposing practices to cast his movement in a more humane light. The rebels left the La Plata barracks and their surrounding houses in flames, and those flames announced to the world that the rebels were alive and ready to take down Batista. The rebels marched through the early hours of the morning, high on the accomplishment, to Palmamoca, and back to the inaccessible regions of Sierra Maestra. The arrival in Palmamoca was not as triumphant as the rebels had dreamed. Palmamoca was a small farming community near a river of the same name. As the rebels approached the area, they were met with a flood of peasants headed in the opposite direction. The Royal Guard had spread the word that the Air Force would be conducting bombing raids in the region, and anyone who stayed might have a bomb dropped on them. The terrified peasants did not need telling twice, and thus an exodus of the land began. Che noted that it was impossible that the Guard could have known the rebels were in Palmamoca, and instead he posited a theory that the air raids was a ruse concocted by the Royal Guard to force the poor peasants from the land. Once the peasants were deplaced, a large landowning family, namely the Nunez Beatty Company, would lay claim to the abandoned land and absorb it into their large land holdings. Due to this theory, Fidel dismissed the dangers of the air raid and fully endorsed the idea that Batista's corrupt rural guard were looking to profit from the war. Instead of following the peasants, Fidel formulated a plan for the rebels' second attack. An abandoned region would be the perfect location for an ambush. The scouts found a homestead near the Arroyo del Inferno that was in the process of being abandoned. The Arroyo del Inferno was a small, narrow, and shallow river that flowed into the Palmamoca River. The homestead the scouts had found lay in a small circular clearing near the slopes of bordering hills. Fidel approached the peasants who lived in the huts and received their blessing to use their land as a temporary rebel base. Fidel had no plans to use the huts to house his troops, but the clearing created the perfect choke point for an ambush. After the peasants had disappeared, he stationed his troops in the woods on the bordering hills. He assumed that it was only a matter of time until the army found their trail that led them away from the La Plata barracks and attempt to hunt them down. When they came, the rebels would spring the trap. 
Fidel made it a habit to walk the lines to judge the troops' combat readiness. On the morning of January 19, 1957, Che joined Fidel to review the troops, and they barely escaped the routine check without serious consequences. In addition to the ammunition and guns taken at the La Plata barracks, Che had also claimed an army corporal's helmet as a trophy. Che liked to wear it and was doing so that morning. Camilo Cienfuegas and the others were on watch, and when they saw a group of people approaching, led by a nondescript man in a corporal helmet, they immediately assumed it was the enemy. Camilo started to fire his machine gun at Che and Fidel, but the gun jammed after the first shot. Luckily, the first shot sailed harmlessly past Che and Fidel. The other soldiers had been in the process of cleaning their guns, and before more shots were fired, Che and Fidel were able to alert them that they were friendly. In Che's published accounts, he chalked up the near miss as follows. The incident was symptomatic of the state of high tension that prevailed as we waited for the relief that battle would bring. In such moments, even those with the strongest nerves feel a certain faint trembling in the knees, and everyone longs for the stellar moment of war. However, this is one of those occasions I warned about last time, where Che did not provide the full story in his published account. Yes, nerves were at play, but Che failed to mention how, at the sound of the gunshot, the other rebels did not assume a defensive position. No, they hightailed it for the bush and abandoned their colleagues. The rebels were incredibly fortunate that their ambush was of Fidel and Che, because if it had been an army regiment, then it would have been a catastrophic failure. Though, I suppose that is why commanders do these little walkthroughs to test combat readiness. Fidel took stock after the rebels' first stress test. The result? The rebels on the lookout duty had been caught cleaning their weapons and were far from being combat ready. The only person who was ready started firing before verifying that his allies were also ready. Such an action would have given away their position to the enemy before they would have been ready to attack. Then, all the other stationed men had so little discipline that they broke and ran. It was an alarming reaction. One that they were all lucky was just a false alarm, and one that Fidel and Che, in particular, were lucky to have survived. After seeing their failure, Fidel and Che were able to fix their mistakes so that everyone would be ready for the real thing. The next few days passed without incident, but then, on January 22, 1957, the sound of distant gunfire alerted the rebels that the army was approaching. Around noon, Calixto Garcia spotted the first of the soldiers as they entered the clearing. The rebels watched silently through their telescopic scopes until a total of nine soldiers gathered around the peasants' huts. As Fidel had predicted, the huts made the perfect location for a trap. Once again, Fidel was to be the individual who started the attack. At this point, I am going to quote Che's combat diary provided in John Lee Anderson's book to describe the battle. Fidel opened fire, and the man fell immediately, shouting, Ay, mi madre! His two companions fell immediately as well. All of a sudden, I realized there was a soldier hidden in the second house, barely 20 meters from my position. I could only see his feet, so I fired in his direction. At the second shot, he fell. Luis Crespo brought me a grenade, sent by Fidel, because they had told him that there were more people in the house. Luis covered me, and I entered. But fortunately, there was nothing else. Che had then stooped to recover the rifle and cartridge belt of the soldier he had fired upon a moment before. While Che had fired his gun in the direction of, of soldiers before, he did not know if he had ever hit any of them. This time, he knew that the shot that had killed this man had been his own. As the doctor that he was, Che inspected the body briefly and noted, he had a bullet hole under the heart, with exit to the right side. He was dead. It is a short, brief note, 
but a monumental moment in the career of the man who would grow to become the most famous revolutionary. His days of talking revolution were over. From here on out, he lived it. Dirty hands and all. A few days after the battle, Chase sent a letter to Hilda to tell her that he was alive and well. In the letter, he optimistically summarized the rebels' first two months of action. The tone of the letter made clear that Che was feeling unstoppable. Hilda reproduced the full letter in her memoirs. I will read the first paragraph to give you an idea of how Che was feeling. Here in the Cuban jungle, alive and thirsting for blood, I'm writing these inflamed, Marte-inspired lines, as if I were a soldier. I'm dirty and ragged, at least. I am writing this letter over a tin plate with a gun at my side, and something new, a cigar in my mouth. As can be seen in the cover photo of the Oro Gray in his podcast, that cigar would spark a lifelong love affair with the Cuban cigar. As the war raged on, the rebels would soon become known as the cigar-smoking, bearded revolutionaries. That would be the image they will foster in the minds of the Cuban people, and it would capture the imagination of the Cuban populace. I have personally always found it humorous that a man who is as afflicted by asthma as Che would become one of the most famous cigar smokers in the world. Just one of life's little jokes, I guess. Che's letter to Hilda showed how optimistic the men were feeling after the two remarkable victories. Ever since they went on the offensive, the rebels had not lost a single soldier or even experienced an injury. The day after the Battle of the Arroyo del Inferno, Che had told one of his colleagues that their victory was inevitable. The momentum, though, would not last, and over the next month, the mettle of the rebels would be tested time and time again. A week later, on January 30th, the cracks in the rebel army started to show. The Air Force flew in and bombed the rebel base camp. This was an extra scary prospect, as the rebel scouts had not seen a single enemy combatant, nor heard them in the area. It was suspected that a traitor may have infiltrated their ranks to explain the accuracy of the raid. The base camp had been on the slopes of Mount Caracas, and was quickly abandoned as the rebels fled the bombs. The rebels suffered no casualties, but the attack did shake them to the core. After the army's failure to capture or kill Fidel, it was decided to change commanders, and Major Joaquin Casillas was assigned to pursue the rebels after the air raid. Major Casillas was one of the more notoriously brutal army officers. He and his soldiers were known to burn huts and murder peasants if the peasants were merely suspected of collaborating with the rebels. The Major harried the rebels at every turn and sent his soldiers out disguised as peasants to attempt to spy on the rebels and sow distrust between the two groups. It was a good strategy, and while it would prove unsuccessful in capturing Fidel, it did place a lot of strain on the rebels and dissuaded the peasants from openly assisting the rebel cause. The night on the run turned into weeks on the run, as the air raid was followed by more. Each explosion drained the morale of the rebels, but the hard times allowed Che to prove his merit to his comrades. He was always the first to volunteer for dangerous assignments and would delight with each success. In the first bombing, as everyone else immediately started to flee, Che actually stayed behind to direct stragglers so that this time they did not all get lost and separated. He retrieved several items that had been left behind in the rush to retreat, including several weapons and Fidel's commandant hat. Che did not outwardly admit, but it is likely that he felt he had at least partially vindicated his earlier actions that led to so many lost weapons. His bravery endeared him to the men, but more importantly, it endeared him to Fidel. The constant bombings ate into the rebels' confidence, and soon the men tired of marching day and night. Soon the disgruntled troops started having little acts of insubordination. It was at this point that Fidel decided to perform a purge of sorts. He allowed the men he termed as sick or demoralized to take a convalescent leave 
at a farm owned by a peasant loyal to Crescencio Perez. His abode moved for a commander of such a small force, but Fidel was acting in the role of a gardener, pulling out the weeds and pruning the flowers so that others could sprout and grow strong. The gamble paid off, and the soldiers who stayed with Fidel became the core of the force that would eventually topple Batista's government. After shedding the weak links, Fidel then decided it was time to lay down the law. He announced to his army that from this point forward, there would be three crimes punishable by death, desertion, insubordination, and defeatism. Within days of the announcement, a hard lesson was learned by those who had stayed. A former rebel named Acuna, who had deserted the rebels, had been captured by the army. Acuna had been tortured, shot multiple times, and then hung by the neck until dead. It provided both a reminder of the dangers of desertion, while also providing an example of the brutality they are fighting against. The rebels were unable to outrun the bombs forever, and eventually one of the raids was successful, and then it resulted in the first rebel casualty since the El Gria de Pio. The death created a solemn mood for the rebellion, but it was soon turned to anger as the suspected traitor was revealed. One of their guides, Eutimio Guerra, had been captured by the army while scouting the nearby terrain prior to the first air raid. Rather than be submitted to torture and likely killed by Batista's men, Guerra made an agreement to provide the army with information about the truce movement. He was also promised a large amount of cash in exchange for his information. Guerra had then returned to his role as guide and would lead the rebels to new base camps before he disappeared to tell the army where to bomb next. The rebels had first begun to suspect Guerra of treachery as he had conveniently been absent during every single bombing run. The information had been confirmed after the rebels captured some soldiers who had the documentation on them that clearly noted Guerra's role with the military with instructions not to harass him. Che published the account of Guerra's eventual fate in a chapter of episodes that was titled Death of a Traitor. After Fidel met with the New York Times reporter Herbert Matthews, an event we'll discuss at length next episode, it was reported that Guerra was in the area. Fidel sent out a patrol to immediately apprehend the traitor. A short time later, Ciro Frias returned with Guerra in tow. In Guerra's possession was a 45 caliber pistol, three grenades, and a safe conduct pass from Major Casillas. This was the final damning evidence needed to prove Guerra's guilt. When Guerra was brought before Fidel, he dropped to his knees and said that he knew he deserved to die. Chase's published account decided to use the occasion to teach a valuable lesson about loyalty. He started the description about how after Guerra had dropped to his knees, that the man seemed to age instantly before his eyes, as Che noticed gray hairs around Guerra's temples for the first time. Fidel responded to Guerra's request to be shot with a harsh reproach for his betrayal. Guerra bent his head in guilt, but the moment truly became tense when the man who had captured him, Ciro Frias, began to speak. Ciro had been close friends of Guerra's long before the revolution had started. Ciro recounted the little favors they had done for Guerra's family over the years. This was made even more emotional as it had been learned that Ciro's brother had been killed by the army after Guerra had turned him over just a few days prior to this confrontation. Ciro emotionally berated Guerra for these crimes and for trying to destroy the whole group, who had clearly shown they were better people than Batista. Eventually, Ciro fell silent, and someone asked Guerra if he had any final requests. Guerra said that all he wanted was for the revolution to take care of his children. Che notes in a somewhat touching paragraph that while the crime was a grave one, that Guerra was just a peasant who craved for glory and wealth. It was unfortunate that Guerra had failed to resist the temptation that was presented by a corrupt regime. However, Che applauded that in Guerra's last moments he recognized his era and had not even thought of asking for clemency. 
He knew he did not deserve to be forgiven, but he also knew that he did not want his children to be punished for his ill judgment. In his last moments, he remembered his children. Fidel had apparently promised to uphold Gare's request, and Che notes that the revolution had kept that promise. Apparently the children's names had been changed so that no one would know that it was their father who was the great first traitor of the revolution. Che stated that with their new names, Gare's children received the same treatment as the children of the country, and that they are with the revolution, working toward a better life. Che then describes Gare's death in the following way. A heavy storm broke out, and the sky darkened. In the midst of the deluge, lightning streaking the sky, and the rumble of thunder, one lightning boat struck, followed closely by a clap of thunder, and Eutimio Guerra's life was ended. Even those comrades standing near him could not hear the shot. You will probably notice that the published version does not mention who fired that shot, and instead uses poetic language to disguise the first execution. Executions are rarely so magical, and this published version only tells part of the story. Che's diary and other accounts help fill in the blank spaces. After the emotional speech from Ciro and the request that the revolution care for Guerra's children, Fidel began to speak again, but this time not in words of reproach. As you recall, before Fidel was the leader of the revolution, he was a lawyer. While Fidel was the commander-in-chief and his word was law, he wanted to hold on to some semblance of law and order. He laid out the crimes and charges. He described the way Guerra had committed the charges and received the guilty plea. He then passed the sentence of death with the execution scheduled to immediately occur. But once the sentence was given, Fidel took a step back. He had taken the role of judge and leader, but he would not stain those positions with blood. He would not be seen as the executioner, but he also did not assign the role of executioner. He left that decision to his soldiers. For a moment, no one moved. John Lee Anderson's biography, Che Guevara, A Revolutionary Life, was published back in 1997. When it was published, he noted that the identity of the first executioner had been a Cuban state secret for 40 years. He, however, as you will recall, had access to the unedited field diary of Che Guevara. In those pages laid the answer. Che described the moment after Fidel passed the sentence, and before anyone moved, as awkward. After that awkward moment, it was Che who had stepped forward with his pistol and ended the traitor's life. He wanted the awkward moment to end, and seems to have held the traitor's life in little regard. Che put the gun to the head of Guerra and pulled the trigger. After Guerra fell to the ground dead, Che had studied the entry and exit wounds and noted their positions in his field diary. He then stooped down and took Guerra's watch off his wrist. He figured the dead man had no need for it, and then he assisted in digging the grave. One of the other rebels wanted to mark the grave with a wooden cross, but Che forbid it. He reasoned that the peasant who lived on the land where the grave was would meet a fierce reprisal from the army if it were known that an execution took place on his land. Instead, the man carved a cross into a nearby tree, and that was the only marker they made for Guerra's final resting place. Che, the first executioner, was not something that was widely publicized by the revolution after it took control of the island. However, Che's army reputation as someone feared by both sides is better documented. Future occurrences will show Che as executing traitors, and Che was a vocal opponent of anyone breaking Fidel's three laws of no desertion, insubordination, or defeatism. The only thing Che hated more than the bourgeois privilege was a coward. Che will earn a reputation in the army of being a fearless protector of the revolution, and one who is willing to do anything to ensure its success. When I was in my final year of attaining my bachelor's degree, I wrote a paper about Che and Fidel. 
It cast them as the two sides of the Machiavellian leader. Fidel, with his speeches and internal optimism in their cause, was loved. Che, with his example as a courageous fighter, coupled with his willingness to teach hard lessons, was feared. Together they made the perfect leadership pair for a small army struggling against the might of the state. This moment, this execution, was where Che's reputation as the fiercest defender of the Cuban Revolution was born. Despite the Argentine accent, Che was the fist of the revolution. Fidel, of course, was the heart. That is where I'm going to leave you for this episode. We covered a lot of ground with the first two battles and the infamous execution of Eutimio Guerra. Next time we will pick back up with the way the revolution shifted after Herbert Matthews' New York Times article announced the rebels' presence to the world. Thank you all for listening this long, and be sure to hit that subscribe button so you can learn about what happens next. The Orb Greatness podcast is available on all major podcasting applications, including Acast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast Attic, and the many others. If you'd like to repay me for the work that goes into bringing you these episodes, then all I ask is that you head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a rating. While this seems like a very small task, it really goes a long way in spreading the word about the show. If you don't want to rate the show, then if you could tell someone about the show, I would be eternally grateful. You can find the show on Facebook by searching the name or going directly to the URL facebook.com slash Podcast. If you'd like to contact me, I reply to messages through Facebook, or you can email me at auraofgreatnesspodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, you may follow my personal Twitter account, at TravStory. That is at T-R-A-V-S-T-O-R-Y. Okay, that does it for me. Thank you for listening to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.14, Two Battles and an Execution. Until next time, cheers.